Hello everyone, welcome to Scholars Beyond the Tower, conversations from our field. We're all involved in something and our work matters. I'm Erin. And I'm Caroline. It's July 19th, and we are sitting down to record with Emily Helmer. Emily is a PhD student at Washington State University specializing in the archaeology of the southern northwest coast. Their research focuses on the human-landscape relationships with an, with an emphasis on indigenous connections to land and place. Their interests include geospatial analysis, collaborative archaeology, cultural heritage, indigenous ontologies, relationality, and traditional resource management. So Emily, we always kick off this podcast with a very important question, and that is, how do you drink your coffee? Oh man, I'm the absolute worst. I drink incredibly <laughs> cheap coffee, completely black, nothing in it. I drink like Folgers. That works. Black. I have I have a really awful um, cup of Folgers instant decaf in front of me, oh. because uh, we're recording this at 7 p.m. Eastern time, and I know, Emily, it's a different time for you right now. Yeah. I like to go to bed early, and I know if I'm going to have a cup of real coffee, I'll be up all night. And this this instant Folgers is just so dark that there's not enough French vanilla in the world to save it. Yeah, I used to drink really, really like sweet coffee. I started out when I started drinking coffee with like iced mochas and I just sort of started phasing out all of the things that didn't contain caffeine. Just inject the caffeine straight into my veins. Emily and I went to field school together a few years ago in Connecticut and uh, I think I brought a coffee maker with me and that was our best friend every morning. And we used to to buy like boxed iced coffee, like boxed iced mochas (laughs) and just drink that. So it was so hot even in the morning. Yeah. The, um, the coffee thing, I think, really just, like, unites us all as, as scholars who are, like, I don't care what form the caffeine is, but it needs to be in me about five minutes ago. These days, we kind of deserve more coffee than normal, I feel. <laughs> I think so. So, Emily, you know, I see that you do archaeology, so what has your journey been like to become an archaeologist? I decided to be an archaeologist when I was in, like, third grade, and then I then I just did that very very briefly considered being an actor in high school and drama when I was in drama class other than that I wanted to be an archaeologist since I was just like a little kid I was really into Egypt when I was little and then I got to college I sat down with the archaeologist that works at that university and just like I want to work in Egypt and he's like that's you're not that's not going to happen (laughs) like you know how hard that is that's insane you're not going to be able to do that and I was like oh yeah that's that's true. And now I just work actually in the exact same region that he works where I started college. So, which ended up being great for me because I absolutely love Southern Oregon. But yeah, I, I came in with big dreams. Like I feel like a lot of uh, archaeology students do. And then you sort of back off romanticization, like the, the Indiana Jones vision of the thing. and start getting into like what the real meat of archaeology is, which is much less glamorous than pyramids, although I find it just as interesting, if not more so. So So can you tell us about this archaeology that you're doing? It sounds like in the United States. I feel like people don't think about the United States as a place that is old or as a place where it's worthwhile to do the archaeology. Yeah, that is definitely a common misconception. I get a lot of uh, confused looks when I, I tell people that I work in Oregon. They're like, what, what do you even, what do you find there? Which is funny because sometimes it doesn't even occur to them that what I'm uh, working on is Native American history because they, they forget entirely because they're, think, they're picturing those, the big monuments that you see in like classical archaeology. And that's, well, we do have huge monuments in the Americas, just not in the part of America I work in. So they get much less excited when I tell them, oh yeah, um, I, I found some great soil stains, some some old trash, which was uh, just shell, just a big pile of shell. That was very exciting for me. And they're like, uh-oh, well. But actually, <laughs> uh, the archaeology in North America is incredibly widespread and indigenous peoples have been living here for thousands of years. We just keep pushing the the date back every year. We push push the date back another thousand years or so, and um, and they 
indigenous peoples lived across the entire United, well, what's now the United States and like all the way down to the very tip of South America, all the way up into the Arctic. And, and they left material everywhere for archeologists to, to find. And I think it's really important too, because so much of that history has been damaged and lost by colonialism. And so archaeology in North America, I think, is really important, reconnecting uh, the present with the past in that way. And also, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that uh, the majority of archaeologists working in the United States, at least, and I think probably worldwide, are working in something called cultural resource management. I'm sure a lot of people know what like an environmental impact survey is. Like you're building a construction site, you want to make sure that there's not like some endangered owl species or something where you're trying to build that. And so you do environmental impact survey and you do the exact same thing for cultural resources before any project that has federal money involved or state money. Archaeologists come out and test that site to make sure that they're not going to be impacting cultural resources. And so a lot of people, I think, have probably seen archaeologists without even realizing it because they, they see us in vests and hard hats out at construction sites screening through dirt and have no idea that that's what's actually happening there. We're, we're everywhere, all over this country. Yeah, I think people just confuse you with um, maybe civil engineers. Oh, yeah. A lot of the times, if you ask archaeologists that you see on the side of the road what it is that they're doing, sometimes they will tell you something like, oh, we're doing some engineering survey, we're doing environmental survey, because uh, a lot of the times, especially if you know that you're near a recorded site, you don't want to tell the public that, oh, by the way, there's a recorded site like right here off the side of the road because you don't want uh, people to come and loot that site or disturb it in some way. So you might have even talked to an archaeologist and they just flat out lied to you, <laughs> which it's nothing personal. It's just this weird, sticky situation we're in where we want to protect these cultural resources. And part of that protection is keeping their location confidential. So I think one of the places that people who aren't in, you know, involved in, in cultural resource management or archaeology, um, like one of the places where we can kind of see that playing out or having having it been in the news and in the headlines you know, like repeatedly was in was in the Dakotas with oh, the yeah. uh, with the pipelines because I remember watching that happen in 2016 and thinking, well this this isn't right um and then having you know in 2020 finally a ruling but the the pipeline is still they said they're doing pre-construction but the pipeline is still being constructed it's and so now i i I really from talking to you emily i'm really seeing why it is even more important for archaeologists to not always say that what they're doing is surveying what is or what may be a reported site well, and, and there's such a strong culture of collecting in the United mm-hmm. States. Like arrowhead hunting is this super fun outdoorsy thing that people do. I recently saw an article on like a an outdoor lifestyle like yep. website that was where to find arrowheads. And it was a guide to looting, basically. And so it's it's really, really hard to keep people from doing that because they don't understand why it's a problem. Because if they remove artifacts um, from the location that they were found in, we lose all of the context associated with that artifact. So, you know, if we don't know where that arrowhead came from, well, we don't know now necessarily what tradition that arrowhead belongs to, what, how old it might have been based on where, like what kind of landform it was found in and what the style is in association with where it was found. There's a huge problem in terms of like educating the public about why looting is such a problem and why they need to just leave archaeological materials where they are and why they shouldn't go out after they find out that there's a site out there or they hear some archaeologists are out there digging, why they shouldn't break out their shovels and walk out there the second the archaeologists leave because that is also a huge problem it's really funny i found children have a much easier way of grasping this concept than adults i used to work as an archaeology educator at a field trip center and we had kids actually working in the site with us and i would say you know we can't take our artifacts that we find home because each artifact is a piece of our archaeology puzzle if you take a piece of a puzzle and someone else attempts to put it together, what happens? They don't have the full picture. And it like the kids got it. The adults never did. Uh, isn't that the way? That's, uh, that's the case <laughs> in so many things. So I guess, yeah. Emily, if you could give us your um, quick 
PSA or quick educational thing. Why should we leave sites the hell alone? And why should we not go artifact hunting in our free time? One of the most important things in archaeology is context. The the context of where an uh, artifact is found is a huge part of how we identify and interpret that artifact. And just like Aaron said, when you move it, you're moving a piece of the puzzle and we can never recover that information. We'll never be able to recover where the artifact was found, what sites it was associated with possibly, what kind of landform it was found in. And if you leave an artifact where it is, That means that someday an archaeologist who is trained in how to record all of those really important contextual information, they can come along someday and record that information in a way that'll preserve it for future researchers and for the public. Um, And also, on a side note, if you collect artifacts from federal land, that is actually a crime. So just, just to be safe leave it be. And um, you can always take a GPS point or note where it is and contact an archaeologist. Um, we're all over the place. You can find us at your local uh, your y- local university. You can find a cultural resource management company and let us know that it's there. We might already have it recorded, but you know we never know. And a lot of the times uh, the public can be really, really helpful in, in this regard. There's been a lot more um, work recently and sort of engaging the public because clearly people who are looting have an interest in the past and if you can uh, engage with them and explain to them why this is so important to maintain the context you can actually learn a lot from them and their knowledge of where they've seen artifacts before uh, what kinds of artifacts they've seen in certain places that's a um, a huge push that people are working on is trying to educate people who are already interested in this kind of history and engage with them in productive ways so that uh, the archaeological past is preserved for everybody and specifically for the descendant communities whose like whose like ancestors actually made these materials and would rather you not dig them all up and hide them in your house on a on a big display board which is often what happens with these things there is actually um i mean i know of a bar in uh, southern oregon out in the desert where they will give you a free beer if you bring them an arrowhead so it's like um how about we we preserve the past so that everybody can learn about it and appreciate the past and not use arrowheads uh, as beer tokens, basically, which is just completely disrespectful. <laughs> and it's so messed up given like the history of, of dispossession, colonialism, and alcohol yeah. In, oh, yeah. in the land that, that we call the United States. Yeah, so. it's just terrible. It's a, it's a huge problem that, and honestly, archaeologists have really uh, failed in educating the public on these matters. And that's, that's on us. And we uh, really need to be doing a better job of public outreach, even to the people we think are a lost cause, because they're not. And sometimes all it takes is a kid saying, hey, leave that there. That's the puzzle. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, educating the kids is a huge part of it because that, that's, the, that's the future, right? So maybe there are some people who are already stuck in their ways, but if we can get to the kids while they're young, they in, instill this ethic of cultural preservation with them, then they will carry that on for the rest of their lives and pass it on to everybody that they meet and pass it on to their kids. That's a huge, a huge piece of this piece of this puzzle. Ah. <laughs> so what are some cool places you've gotten to do field work? in the U.S.? Oh, man. Um, Well, as you know, Erin, I worked on the Eastern Pequot uh, (laughs) Reservation in Connecticut, which was an incredible project. And it was a really beautiful landscape and really, um, really cool because I think it's like the second oldest reservation in the United States, if I remember correctly. And there's just such a long history, um, indigenous use of that landscape, which is something I'm really interested in, is this idea of persistence on the landscape. And, and that was just absolutely beautiful. And then I did my second field school because I, uh, you don't need to do two field schools. I just did because I like to be a little extra. <laughs> it's, it, you know, what else am I going to do with my summer? Anyway, uh, my second field school was at uh, Cahokia, which is one of the coolest sites in the United States, in my opinion. It, it is a giant city just across the uh, Mississippi River from St. Louis in Illinois. There 
was the largest city north of Mexico, basically. And they had at least 10,000 people at their height living there. Although, you know, estimates for that kind of stuff vary all over the place. And these huge earthen pyramids that they built. I mean, just just absolutely massive. And and hundreds of them, too. I mean, at, at the Cahokia site court itself, there's a huge number of mounds. And then it's embedded within this landscape that stretches from right outside of St. Louis, all the way down into Florida and all the way up into Minnesota, there are these mounds that were centers of these very complex, very, very interesting cultures that were all in conversation with each other uh, in one way or another. And this is this is a huge phenomenon that you see. Uh, It's actually one of like the earliest um, fascinations that um, early American colonists had was this idea of the mound builders. Who were they? Because it couldn't possibly have been the Native Americans. By the time that American colonists like really show up in full force, the Native American population had been completely decimated. Their their cultures had already been completely disrupted by the spread of disease even before there were all that many actual colonists on the ground interacting with them. And so um, what we saw... Uh, at contact is a lot of the times not reflective of the way that it was just before contact. Uh, And so people move into this landscape and they're seeing these decimated populations, like up to 90% of some of these populations have been killed off by disease. And they're like, well, this doesn't look like they could have done that. And it's like, well, yeah, because you killed most of them anyway. But Cahokia was a very, very cool site to work at. I, got, I was really, really lucky that I got to work there. Even a lot of people that work in that area don't actually get to excavate at the site of Cahokia itself. So that was really cool. My first academic poster was something that I put together out of that field school, uh, which was kind of a mess because I was like desperately trying to like do a geospatial analysis on my computer in the crappy apartment we were staying in for field school with terrible internet like trying to put together this academic poster and like powerpoint but it was a really cool experience that I got to like contribute in some way in research I think that that's a really great opportunity when field schools really encourage their undergrad students to produce research from that field school because a lot of the time field schools especially in the past have had this reputation of sort of exploiting student labor because the students pay to come and they dig all of this stuff for free. And so it's really great when, and this you see this a lot more now because people have sort of realized that that's not the greatest thing to do. So you see a lot more trying to integrate the undergrads in like the research aspect of it so that they really get something out of it. I think it's so important that you bring Cahokia into the conversation because people really don't think of Native Americans as having cities or, or oh, large yeah. centers of population. And it's always so important to just remind them that you know, these were advanced people. These were advanced civilizations. I mean, they are. I mean, they're not absolutely you know, existing Ab- in the past. Absolutely. And I mean, I think it. we're used to reading a certain perspective. And it's really good to see that flipped because you're right. These are still thriving peoples and civilizations. And it's so important to work with them mm-hmm. and work with descendant communities. And I know Caroline was planning on asking you this as well, but do you want to speak to what it's like working with the, the, the descendant communities or doing collaborative work? I was really lucky because the the field school that I went to in Connecticut is a collaborative field school. The guy that runs it, Steve Silliman at uh, UMass Boston, has been running this collaborative field school with the Eastern Pequot tribe for, I got a really long time, more than like 10 years, probably closer to 15. Um, and it's so important to have tribal members being involved in the process from the very beginning and sort of helping guide like research designs and research questions and also just being out um, on like the ground with you so that they can um, not just to monitor what the archaeologists are doing although they certainly uh, sometimes need to be there to stop people from doing stupid things but also just to like share their like like their personal take on things and their knowledge that they have. I mean, I've been out in the field with tribal monitors who have talking about like the the landscape and like 
oh, well, over there, it looks like a great area uh, to harvest X, Y, or Z plant. And, oh, I bet that if you looked up on that ridge, you would probably find a site because, well, you would want your site up on that ridge to keep it away from like the water, from drainage. And, you know, getting all of this like really interesting information and them having like sharing their stories and their their personal knowledge about this stuff is so important. And I'm, like I said, I got really lucky because my first field school was collaborative. And so I basically have never done archaeology that, that wasn't in some regards collaborative. Like it's a huge part of the way that I look at archaeology and it was so formative to to get that opportunity so early on because I feel like a lot of people don't and then they're intimidated by it because it's it seems like you know it's going to be really scary and like they don't want to screw it up it's I'm not going to say it's not hard because a lot of the times it is because there are like this long long history of colonialism and archaeology and there's a lot of distrust but between like indigenous communities and archaeologists which is completely warranted but I think that getting to confront that stuff really early on made me a better archaeologist and I wish more people got that opportunity everybody should check out Steve Silliman's work with collaborative archaeology he's really great with that stuff I mean more important than like collaborative archaeology like and obviously I do get you get so much out of it working with descending communities but more importantly it's trying to reckon with the colonial history of archaeology and recognizing that the descendant communities have ownership and rights and um, connections to these to these pasts these are their pasts these are their materials these are their lands and so if you're trying to do anything vaguely ethical in archaeology you need to be talking to the descendant communities it is the only way to do ethical archaeology is to collaborate in my opinion because it is these are their materials that they have been completely separated from through colonialism for so long and it is so important that archaeology stop that Mm -hmm. pattern you know we need to break that pattern and make sure that they have active voices in the interpretation of their past the what happens with those materials the kinds of projects that are happening on their land if they even want projects to be happening on their land but I think a lot of times archaeologists look at it like oh I just want to check a box but like I was saying it you do get you gain so much from these perspectives it's like it's not just like oh yeah, of course it's the ethical thing to do, but it's not just like, oh, I got to check a box so that I'm ethical. It's not like going to like an IRB and getting institutional review board, like, oh, check that. It's so much more than that. It, like you build these relationships with people and you you gain so much more from, from it than just checking a box on your list of things you need to do for a project. It's shocking, but it's almost like being an ethical researcher makes your work better. Yeah, exactly. It does. It's in any, in any research of any kind, you, you gain so much more by like one, talking to more people and by respecting people and really thinking through these ethical questions, I think it makes you, it makes you really dig through your research design so much in so much more detail and really think about why you're doing all the things you're doing. Um, Because science is incredibly political and everything that you do has some sort of political ramification. It's coming from some sort of place. And when you're really thinking about these ethics, it sort of forces you to dig through your research design and really think about the choices that you're making in your research and why you're making those choices and what outcomes those choices have, not just on your research, but like on society at large, which I feel like a lot of people don't think about uh, in archaeology and just in science generally. Absolutely. And I mean, archaeology is inherently destructive. Oh, yeah. Once you take things out, you can't put them back. It's not a repeatable experiment. There is no, let me put everything back and then yeah. they could do it better next time. Like it's, yeah. it's been taken and now it's so important to do it right the first time and to form those relationships yeah. because descendant communities are, they should be the ones gaining this knowledge. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's theirs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my advisor, uh, Shannon Tushingham, I'll plug her uh, at Washington State University. She's done a lot of projects with with tribal communities in Northwestern California from a historical ecological perspective and sort of the, the tribes are interested in uh, learning more about traditional uh, harvesting practices and traditional resource management practices. Um, but because of colonialism, a lot of that information has been disrupted. And so they, they come with these questions to, to focus on specific things that are in, like important to that community in terms of regaining traditional knowledge, in terms of 
asserting food sovereignty, uh, asserting their sovereignty more generally. And so, you know, we have the tools to do these things that are really important to these communities who a lot of times don't have these tools because of horrible institutional bias that makes it incredibly difficult for descendant communities to get access to this kind of stuff. Most of the work that I've done afterwards has been in some way collaborative. I was um, a research assistant on a uh, a project in the Great Basin in Oregon. That was also, we uh, we reached out to the tribe. We, we had meetings with them. We hired tribal monitors to come out with us, which is another important thing is like hiring these people and paying them money for the work that they're doing instead of just sort of assuming that they're going to like give you this information and check you on this stuff. Like... And so we had tribal monitors out there with us. And like I said, they, they're, you know, the information that they like were giving us was great. The stories they were sharing up with us were so interesting and made you appreciate the landscape you were in so much more because you can like, you, they're really sharing their connection and their ancestors connection with those places, which is so important for interpreting archeological past is thinking about those relationships because it's not just artifacts scattered on the landscape, buried in the soil. These are like the material remains of human activities and those humans have relationships with other humans that were like both in the past but also relationships that span up into the present um and so getting that sort of perspective on the things i think really adds to your interpretation and really peoples the past you know it really gives you an appreciation for the fact that this is these are humans that did this stuff it's not just materials on the landscape which a lot of the time you you see especially in older archaeological studies this like perspective where it sounds like it's just you know projectile points moving across the landscape by themselves without people doing doing anything there there were people with agency and and they weren't you know they weren't one-dimensional they weren't even two they were they were real people yeah, there's this like long archaeological uh, tradition of naming cultures after the material. So there's the the most famous is the uh, the Clovis people, which is Clovis is the name of a uh, projectile point, which are they're so beautiful. There's these beautiful big fluted points, and it's named after the place where they were found. And now that's the Clovis peoples that were. Again, this is like this talk about like, well, Clovis was moving across the landscape and they people sometimes forget that these are people doing this. And, you know, it's not these points sort of magically moving across the landscape. My favorite uh, archaeological culture that was named after a material was the uh, the funnel necked beaker people because they had funnel necked <laughs> beakers. But when you hear the funnel necked beaker people, I, I've always sort of in my head vi- envisioned these kind of like alien people. <laughs> <laughs> like long necks um it's like this old old uh ceramic technology in europe but it's it's one of the first things too that i like learned about in like my intro to archaeology class and that has just stuck with me like huh the funnel necked beaker people it's funny we do get so bogged down in our typology sometimes that we we do forget that these are people yeah. making and using yeah objects i mean that's that's what an artifact is it's something made or used by people <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Humans are obsessed with stuff and have been obsessed with stuff for forever in various ways. And so looking at the material culture is such a great way to learn about those people and what those people valued and how those people did things. But uh, yeah, sometimes people get a little bit too, because we're all obsessed with materials, sometimes archaeologists get a little too obsessed with the actual material itself and forget to like extrapolate that out to human action. <laughs> I mean, somebody needs to be doing that really fine-grained stuff, but I, I personally find it so much more interesting to just to really to populate the past with agents. I like that. I think that's a really good way to put that. So Emily, what sort of challenges have you faced to get to this point in your academic career, personal career? I mean, honestly, I think that I've been I've been very privileged. I mean, I went to college. I was able to pay for college through a bunch of different ways that included some student loans, but I'm not nearly as <laughs> burdened down by that as a lot of people. I got really lucky in that way. And then I just, I went straight from my undergrad into grad school, mostly because I I've wanted to be an archaeologist for so long. I was like, why would I, why would I bother waiting? <laughs> I know what I want to do. You know, a lot of people like that gap year or gap years are so important because they really need to like figure out what it is that they 
want to invest all this time in grad school <laughs> doing um, because it's a lot of time. Really lucky in that I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I think that probably what would be hardest there is that there is so much unsaid stuff in academia, like things that you're just supposed to sort of know how to do. Uh, and so when I was applying to grad school, there were all of these these things that I and I even went to you know workshops about how to apply to grad school and there were still things that I completely had no idea about because it's just like unsaid people who have like parents in academia like a lot of the times can navigate that stuff uh better but that you know that wasn't me even though I do have like other family members that are in academia they're not in anthropology and so I was like totally clueless I like look back on like the way that I handled my grad school applications and I like cringe and I I didn't like reach out really in any real way to the people I was applying with. I like sent them an email to be like, are you um are you accepting applications? And then sort of got the yes and then just never and then just sent them an application, which <laughs> I realize is now I realize is completely like crazy because like you should really be trying to like build a relationship with your potential advisors before you get to grad school and send them a couple emails back and forth talking about like what kind of research you're interested in, how their research complements that. And I mean, I know like a lot of people even like call these people, they, they visit campuses before they, before they uh, apply even. And I was just like, Oh, I'll just double check that they're accepting applications and I'll just send that up. <laughs> um, and so I didn't even do that. Yeah, see, nobody, nobody so. And sometimes you get lucky and like that, like, I mean, like I got really lucky. My my advisor clearly did, was not uh, taken aback by the fact that I just sent in an application without trying to like build a relationship with her beforehand. Um, but I mean, I only got into one program. I applied to three. And so it's like, whenever people are like asking me about like, what should I do to apply to grad school? That's one of the things that I'm like, just email these people. They are human beings. They are not scary. <laughs> Because that's the other thing. I was like, well, I, I wouldn't want to bother them. <laughs> no, bother them. That's fine. They're just, you know, people. Send them emails. Try to, like, build a relationship with that person before you get there. Because the other thing is having a good relationship with your advisor is so, so important. And so many people end up getting pushed out of academia because they have these really toxic relationships with their advisors. And a lot of the time that stuff can be, you know, headed off if you just talked to that person beforehand or talked to um, some of their grad students and finding out what their advising style is like and finding out things like the funding in the department and what are the expectations for publishing? What are the expectations for independent research? And trying to figure all that stuff out beforehand. So many people end up in grad school and their expectations are totally off or they, they didn't think to reach out. And we really need to do a better job of advising our undergrads about that stuff. Academia is just built on unsaid assumptions. So you know, we really need to be better about making these things explicit. I want yep. a t-shirt that says that. <laughs> I kind of just walked around in grad school like, listen, I'm first generation. I have no idea what's going on. Yeah, what is the unwritten curriculum here that I'm missing? <laughs> you know, and I think that everybody should be a better mentor in academia because it's so hard and it's so much easier when you uh, have some guidance going into it. I feel like at least from, from what I've seen and what I've done, a lot of the reason why we funnel undergrads into um, advanced degree programs, whether it's um, you know, like a research intensive master's or a PhD or, or something is because the the faculty need someone to do labor for them. Yeah, because they're and I, I can't even believe that I'm saying this, but like they are expected to do way too much with way too little. And the only way for them to stay afloat is to pass the buck on to graduate students, whether they be PhD students or MA students. And it is um, disgusting. But that's what the, the labor conditions are in the university and they need exactly. to change. And like I said, with like contacting like people's current graduate students, like find out like how much time do you have for your own research? Like, are you mostly there to work on your advisor's uh, projects? And sometimes that's like, you know, that's great. And that's what you want, especially in like a uh, more STEMI sort of science -y fields. It's like, well, I'm working on that person's grant and that's like what I'm here for. And if that's what you want, that's great. But I feel like a lot of times, you know, people's own research and own interests get totally sidelined. Um, and, you know, finding out in advance, like from people's grad students, like how much time do you have for your own independent research? <laughs> Especially if you really come in with like a very like specific idea of what you want to do and you just don't get that support. It is like, 
totally demoralizing to be like stuck on a project that you are not interested in. So to like switch gears, could you yeah. talk us through a like typical day of, of life as an archaeologist? Oh man, I mean it depends on the time of the year. People you know like to think of archaeology in terms of like the excavation and that's really only a uh, a very small part of what we do with our time. Uh, usually in the summer, both because the weather is better and also because a lot of archaeologists are academics and they they have time in the summer to do it. So, you know, if, if we're talking excavation, you're waking up at like, you know, four or five in the morning to get started before it gets super hot. And you, you know, spend the day walking through a forest, walking through a desert, walking along a highway, <laughs> depending on how lucky you are and what kind of project you're working on. And you do that for 10 hours a day. And then you fall asleep at your hotel and come back the next day <laughs> um, or at your camp or whatever. But that, like I said, that's only like a really small part of archaeology. And so much more of it is sitting in a lab, digging through old paperwork especially if it's a project that like you were not involved in the excavation of which happens a lot with um like legacy collections and like old old projects that like nobody ever analyzed and you're like digging through like the site reports and trying to like decipher people's notes and like piece together like what's going on and you know spending time doing artifact analysis which is extremely time consuming so there's a lot of that and there's a lot of uh data analysis and writing, so much writing. If you're in cultural resource management, the writing is like report writing, like you're writing, um, I mean, you're being hired, basically contracted out through like a construction company or a federal agency, and you have to write reports to them to like, this is what we found. These are the adverse effects that your project could have on cultural resources. And there's a lot of like legal jargon for that. So there's like a very specific way it has to be written. And then in academia, it's, uh, you know, you're trying to constantly publish is the publisher parish thing but also um depending on what kind of project you have you might have obligations to also write a report to some federal agency or something and and this is something that i wish that i had known uh not that this would have made me not be an archaeologist but especially with data interpretation there's so much statistics in archaeology man i thought i was really gonna not have to do math ever again <laughs> uh, really they they trick you with the with the cool artifacts and the beautiful outdoor work and then you uh, end up having to sit in front of a statistics program like crying it's the indiana jones effect you call this archaeology oh, i don't know what i was expecting because you're working with huge amounts of data <laughs> that you're producing and how are you going to analyze that you can't just sort of like look at it and be like yeah that's more than that and it's like is it i don't know let's figure it out it sucks because I really want to just be like, I hate statistics, but then sometimes it really, really helps. And I like get like a good, like a, a good analysis and it gives me like exactly the results I want. It's so satisfying. You're like, yes, like I was right. It like, it came out into something and this big spreadsheet of like artifact attributes suddenly means something because I've, I've got like some graphs to look at. So it's actually, um, it is really satisfying. I just wish it was easier. Oh, man. And if you had unlimited funding, time, availability, resources, support, perfect conditions, everything working in your favor, what project would you want to undertake? Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> I know it's kind of like a very broad and scary question in a way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Oh, there are so many things. There are so many things that are so unrelated to each other. I think something <laughs> that I've really... I mostly in the past have worked in Oregon, but the the actual cultural area that I like research, the Southern Northwest Coast encompasses Southwestern Oregon and Northwestern California. Like obviously these borders didn't exist uh, before colonization. And, and there's so much, people are just talking past each other and have been talking past each other for, you know, basically since archeology span started. <laughs> And I think that something that I would really like to do is to do a, a huge like data synthesis project, you know, like really dig into these materials on both sides of the border and really think about how they all connect together. Um, and also the, the survey in this area is very spotty. There hasn't been a lot of systematic archeological survey in a lot of the Southern Northwest coast. So there are huge gaps 
in what we know about uh, the landscape and the use of the landscape, because a lot of archaeology in this region is from cultural resource management. And because of that, it means that a lot of this research happens where people build things and where construction has happened. And there's a lot of places um, in the mountains uh, that nobody's built anything. And it's like a, a lot of this area isn't heavily populated. So they just, they haven't done as much. And so there's these gaps in our, in our knowledge. And I feel like it sort of disconnects those parts of the landscape from the bigger picture. Um, and I think that doing some more systematic survey in those areas would help connect the entire region because obviously maybe you can't build a highway through the mountains. It doesn't mean that people weren't using the mountains. And just because there's a gap in our map of archeological sites in that area, doesn't mean that those areas weren't being used. Um, so I really want to like, I'm really into integrating whole landscapes. Uh, it's like, I, I'm very, very into that. So I want to integrate the California and Oregon archeology span and also integrate these parts of the landscape that haven't been surveyed as much received as much attention so because a lot of the work that that you know like we've been sold on as archaeology is like the the outdoors and then the, the excavation sites mm -hmm. um but then also like like what you're telling us about the you know like the lab work and the statistical work and if you didn't cry mm -hmm. when running your statistics did you even do statistics <laughs> um <laughs> So I, I'm wondering really how has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted your work or you know, like the field in general? Oh man, in very dramatic ways. Uh, my, both of my roommates are also archeologists and we are all very sadly sitting in our house, all field projects canceled. <laughs> we were all supposed to be in the field this summer and now nobody is, we're all moping. Um, and that's a huge problem just, just for all research um, in archaeology, like especially for grad students whose work is on a timeline and we're, we really, really need to get out into the field to like do our dissertations um, and, and we can't. And like my, my uh, dissertation project was canceled, isn't really going to be rescheduled because the, the funding that we were getting from the tribe needs to be used by the end of this year. And so, since we can't go out this summer, it's not it's just not going to happen. And there's a lot of, lot of people I know whose projects are like that, which honestly is really pushing people to think about how we can use data we already have, which I think is really important. Like I know I personally have been like sort of thinking about how to use, I do a lot of uh, geospatial analysis. Um, so a lot of fancy map analysis and stuff like that on my computer and um, so I've been like you know trying to think of new projects that I can do with that information um trying to use legacy collections which are just um collections that were excavated a while ago and have been sitting in a museum somewhere for forever um I feel like a lot more people are trying to like turn to those collections and reanalyze those instead of go excavate new things which is great because like Aaron mentioned, archaeology is destructive. Archaeological resources are non-renewable. So, um, and we have all of these boxes and boxes of things that are, were excavated forever ago and then nobody ever analyzed. And so I think that a lot of people are sort of taking this opportunity of being trapped indoors to think about the things that we can do while we're already, like, what do we already have? How can we, how can we pivot towards the materials that we already have that really need to be reanalyzed and you know thinking about data synthesis is also super important like you know there's all of these projects that have been done in the past that didn't really talk to each other and if you uh integrate them all you can like get totally different pictures and i think archaeology in general has in the last you know 20 years or so been moving a lot more towards these kinds of like big syntheses so i think that people are already sort of equipped to do that kind of work so it, it sucks <laughs> not being able to 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 get out and um, do new excavations and do more um, of that kind of stuff. But that doesn't mean that we can't do research um, because there's there's so much stuff we already have and so much synthesis that needs to be done and things that need to be reanalyzed. So I think that it's very sad, but <laughs> I, I hopefully we can like sort of take a step back and like think about the other kinds of research that we can be doing as sucky as it is that so many people's projects have been totally screwed <laughs> on the, on, on a cultural resource management note. Also, um, actually a lot of that work is still happening because, uh, construction is essential for the most part. <laughs>
So construction is still happening. So cultural resource managers are still out there and they're digging in masks. So to everybody that complains about, oh, I can't wear a mask. I can't breathe. It's too hot. There are archaeologists out there in masks in 100 degree weather digging holes. So, you know, you can just suck it up. <laughs> we were talking with um, with another guest a few weeks ago about how physical archaeology is people don't always real like yes oh you're God. digging of course but oh my gosh it's oh. so physical you feel it in your wrists your knees I mean I know so many older archaeologists that have needed knee replacements oh yeah uh and the poison ivy the ticks and pe- people really don't realize just oh, how I mean, physical it is every like every archaeologist that's been working in New England for more than like five years <laughs> has Lyme disease they've all gotten it but also I mean it is so physical I'm right-handed, and so that's the hand I use to trowel. And basically, since I started archaeology, the muscles on that hand are so prominent, and they have never gone that down. Because <laughs> it's just like, it's like ripped. It is so jacked compared to my other hand, because it's my trowel hand. There were so many rocks in the ground at our field oh, school in Connecticut that we would... I worked with someone who, who was very physical in his archaeology, and um, he would, like use his shovel he would smack it down and sparks would come off the ground oh, yeah. because of oh, how yeah. many rocks yeah. there were that's some rough dirt i know it's that glacial till uh <laughs> new england soil is just like horrible oh actually man. that's like clay is my least favorite thing to dig in i was just on a project <laughs> where we were digging in clay and oh my god you can usually get like through um, a shovel test pit which is just a small circular hole in the ground just to test to see it's like the first step like is there something here yes or no um and they usually take oh i don't know 30 minutes to 45 minutes depending on how fast you're going and if you're working with another person and oh my god i'm talking like an hour and a half to get through some of these holes it was unbelievable the clay you could have made like little you could have started a little pottery studio out there it was so miserable to dig through every archaeologist has a favorite kind of dirt and a least favorite dirt what's your favorite kind of dirt uh well i think my favorite kind of dirt would have to be uh, a nice uh sandy loam it's very light it's very non-compact for the most part love a good loam so yeah for people who who have never been in the field who don't understand some of the things that go on i want you to know there's literally a book of oh, yeah. colors that you match your soil to it's called the Munsell book <laughs> and um and there's a lot of archaeology memes where you uh match your coffee to your Munsell yeah. but I've also we also had to do the ribbon test to see what kind of soil you were working with we do oh, a lot yeah. of fun things <laughs> like the dirt in your hands you like hold up a little piece of dirt to this book and you like match all the different colors very fun you know you don't have to go into the field to be an archaeologist there are a lot of archaeologists that are are just lab people and they don't really excavate but it is one of my favorite parts of archaeology is just getting totally filthy just like being hot and sticky and covered in dirt and just digging all day it's one of my favorite things because I mean so often you're in these like beautiful areas uh, especially in the I mean if you're doing cultural resource management in like Los Angeles a lot less beautiful areas a lot less a lot more freeway underpasses <laughs> but uh, I um, I do cultural resource management in the summer because grad students don't get paid in the summer so I, I work in cultural resource management in the summer uh, and I'm out in the Pacific Northwest. So we get some absolutely beautiful landscapes and, you know, it's incredibly hard work and sometimes I can barely move by the end of it, but at least I was in the woods all day uh, looking at beautiful vistas and identifying neat flowers and things. I'm trying to get a lot better at uh, identifying plants, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, great it's one of my favorite things is being in the field it feels like totally right when I'm back out in the field so it's a it's a real shame I am still working in cultural resource management this summer but I was supposed to be on the Oregon coast working on my dissertation and I am just heartbroken that I'm not out there um but it's all right I still get some trees sometimes so (laughs) That should be just like the thing about grad school. Grad school, you get some trees sometimes, usually as a treat. Yeah, 
well, certainly there are no trees where I live. So I get very excited when I get put on a project out in a national forest or something. So you've said that you like, um, you like trees. What else do you like to do for fun? (laughs) Oh man, I have almost no hobbies because I made a horrible mistake of, uh, when I was a kid, uh, archaeology was my hobby, and reading about archaeology was my hobby, and being obsessed oh, no. with archaeology was my hobby. Oh, you played yourself. I, and I'm like, oh no, I didn't develop any hobbies as a kid. <laughs> so it's like, um, and also, you know, I was like in like sports when I was a kid, which I don't do now. Uh, so I'm like, well, oh no, what do I, I said, what do I do? I watch a lot of TV. Uh, love, Same. love to. You know, binge watch an entire season of something on Netflix. Uh, I I cook. I like cooking. Um, although a lot of the times I'm just too bored and lazy to do something fancy. <laughs> so I eat a lot of like you know pasta. But yeah, it's a real problem. I've been it's I've been trying the last like couple of years to really like find things that I like to do that are not archaeology because I recognize that it is like a huge problem to like not have a hobby outside of work (laughs) but I really love what I do so it only occasionally really like weighs on me when I'm really really angry at my research or I've been like working on something nonstop and I want to do something else I'm like well I guess I guess there's tv so there's always tv everybody I've you know got all the streaming services (laughs) lots of stuff to look at but yeah, um, so I recommend uh, if if you have a if you have a kid that is really 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 in to something that could become a career, make sure they do something else with their time also, or one day they're gonna get screwed. That's my advice. <laughs> I wish my kids did something other than just like sit in my room and read like books about archaeology. Plus, archaeology is one of those things where everybody wants to know about it. So I just like, unlike, you know, if you're like an engineer and people are like, I'm an engineer. And they're like, oh, cool. And they don't have a lot of follow-up questions. If you're an archaeologist, you get a lot of follow-up questions. So I'm like, I'm very good at uh, having answers ready to go. I was literally just like at the grocery store and the the cashier was like, oh, what do you do? And I was like, well, I'm an archaeologist. And he was like, oh, I've got all, I, I, I have some questions. Where are you working? What are you doing? There's this site in Egypt that you should look up. He like wrote it down oh. on a piece of paper and gave it to me. Turned out that it was not actually an archaeological site. It was a natural formation of concentric rings. Still very cool. Oh, cool. <laughs> but uh, there are some loose ties to Atlantis. It's a whole thing. Uh, and we're back to ancient aliens. Yes, that's the thing also with archaeologists is a lot of the time that you're, you're, the, the follow-up questions make you go, oh, well, I wish that that wasn't what you thought when you heard archaeology because ancient aliens is incredibly pervasive and incredibly racist. So it is um, really frustrating to have to deal with all the time and being like, actually, no, human people made this thing, not aliens. <laughs> Just because those human people weren't white doesn't mean that they didn't know how to do that. Uh, Turns out uh, they are also people and they are very smart and they can, you know, like some of the stuff that they're like, there's no way that, that, that they could have, could have done that. And it's like, how hard do you think that that is to do? It's the same thing with the pyramids. It's like, it was so hard to make that. It's like, they just put the rocks on rollers and rolled them. And then they made ramps out of earth and rolled those up the ramps. It's like, it's not that hard. Like it's, you're just, people know how to roll heavy things. And I literally though, I've had, I was in an African archeology span class and we were talking about Egypt and this girl who was an anthropology major, like this is like in theory what she's supposed to do. Oh, no. She like raised her hand and she was like, I just think it is so crazy that nobody knows how they built the pyramids. Uh, you were not paying attention. <laughs> because we know how they built the pyramids she's like isn't it crazy that nobody knows and she said it with such confidence and you were like oh oh no so it's just one weird trick that archaeologists don't want you to know oh my god yeah it's well that's (laughs) the other thing is a lot of the public a lot of these people that are into this ancient aliens thing think that archaeologists are hiding things from them they think that there's like some big conspiracy that archaeologists don't want you to know about and it's like no it, we 
we think that this stuff is cool. If we found out something crazy like that, we would want to tell people. Why would we, what? And we tell people about the cool things that we find. There's just no aliens involved. And I think like people really do like just like discount how powerful like these simple machines are like a pulley and inclined plane. And I'm like, do you understand how much we still use pulleys? Pulleys give you a three to one mechanical advantage. Uh, My dad's an engineer, so I politely laugh at that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, sure. I don't, I don't know what that is. I like, so, so my dad's a stagehand. So all I know is that like, they make it easier to hoist stuff. No, all right. And then, and then any, so then like the other, like really good, good tip from, you know, the stagehand's daughter is any appropriately tied knot. So if it's a real knot, it can be untied. But if you have something that's like, like just like this mess of of string or wire or whatever, whoever tied that hated you and never wanted you to be ever (laughs) able to untie it. And it's usually (laughs) me who does that to myself. (laughs) My, my headphones do that inside my pocket. Can I just say God bless techies, by the way? Love a love a techie, love a stagehand. They do all the important work in theater. They do. That is actually what my dissertation is on. We asked you about like the big dream project, but yeah. what would what like where where in the world of archaeology or just like where in the world do you yeah. What's my dream? Yeah, and that sounds so cheesy, but like like what do you want to do? Who do you want to be? Well, I have a somewhat unrealistic dream of uh, having a tenure-track job at a university, uh, <laughs> which uh, is just the, the, the academic job market in general is just terrible. But in archaeology especially, it is like really, really hard because, um, you know, it's, it's so specialized and, um, you know, the the social science departments aren't the ones with the funding <laughs> at these universities so it's really really hard to get jobs and um i know especially with like the the thank god that i'm not graduating like this year because the job market has been absolutely slammed by covid um you know all of these a bunch of like uh job searches i mean there are like maybe 15 like academic archaeology jobs posted a year and so many of those searches were canceled because the the funding is just gone now because like the university had to like cut the funding because of covid um but Mm -hmm. you know in my in my perfect world everything will recover they'll start funding the social sciences i'll be able to get a job at a university preferably in california because i am a california person and uh i get very homesick (laughs) Uh, even though I only live two states away right now, I'm incredibly homesick. Um, I My entire thesis is largely based on how important place is to people and how people are connected to the places that mean things to them. So it is unsurprising that I am incredibly <laughs> attached to the place that I grew up. And I like, so in my, you know, in my dream, I get to go back home, which is so sad because academia, I feel like a lot of people don't think about how academia like severs support systems and forces people to move places far away from home because there are just so few jobs, um, which is just terrible because it's like, I love doing this. I want to do this. And it sucks that you have to like sacrifice things like living close to your family and friends so that you can do the thing you want to do. It's a, very I feel like not appreciated enough struggle in academia is this especially like right now with like coronavirus so many people are like stuck where they are and like can't go home and they're so far away from like their like families and like there's no because they were in grad school and they were stuck and now they're just stuck there and they can't go home especially over the summer which is when people have the time to do that um it's terrible that, so that was a very sad way to end my, this is my dream. But but it's the reality and, you know, and we're, like, we're in this so. like extractive system and, oh, yeah. and it, it takes a toll on us too. It's, um, you know, like I, and I'm one of those people who my family are yokels in, <laughs> in lower New York. Okay. So my parents grew up in the same town the same like they call it a city but whatever that's cute it's 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 less than 20 miles from new york city so that's why i say it's Mm -hmm. cute um and 
Yeah. And it's like, also, I mean, especially like if you're, uh, especially I feel like this happens with archaeologists a lot because there are so few academic archaeology jobs. Uh, if you are in a relationship with an archaeologist, you there's a very high probability that for part of your relationship, you will be living in a different place because like they got a postdoc over there. They're in grad school over there. Like they, you know, there are people that I know like married couples that like live in different States because they. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Oh no. See, see, it's so common in academia. And like, I feel like, people outside of academia don't really think about that um which sucks because of course like who are you going to have like so much in common with a lot of the time it's other academics and then you guys are like stuck in this system that like requires you to be living in very specific places um and it like totally like rips apart these kinds of like relationships that people have like with their families and with their partners and they are already in an incredibly stressful situation because they're in academia and now you add on to that that your support system is living somewhere else and it's like uh academia is rough i know i said my dream is to end up in academia i wish there was another way to do my dream where i could do that but not be in academia oh um, my gosh oh my god i feel it that is. i'm i'm trying to do that for myself and i like as i say like i hope there is room on a floating door for you yeah <laughs> yeah it is yeah, it's like one of those things, though, where it's like, I, I love the research aspect of archaeology. I love, like, writing and, like, doing all of these, like, big research questions that I sort of, I get to direct myself. And you can definitely do research in cultural resource management, but you're doing a, a full-time job and you might have time for research of your own on the side. Or if you're really lucky, you work for a company that gives you some of the, some time to do that, but it's not very common. And it really restricts like cultural resource managers from like participating in that kind of like like 90 percent of archaeologists in america work in cultural resource management <laughs> and they are largely excluded from the like the research realm like you know, they're publishing they're constantly writing all these reports but they stay in the gray literature and they aren't circulated widely in like the academic archaeology community which is terrible because that's like 90% of archaeologists and they're doing so much important work and dealing with so much uh material culture and it's just locked up in all this gray literature um which is just a shame like that you know it's very much the ivory tower of academic archaeology so I want to work in academia so that I can have that time for research, but also it's like, so uh, it's academia. I don't need to explain the problem. <laughs> so we'd like to finish on, on you know, a high note. So what note. has, you know, like, just like a happier note, you know, like for, for the ratings. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's clearly past my bedtime. What has been your um, your what you consider to be like your biggest triumph? And this can be like a thing at work or an education thing or a personal thing. So whatever it is. My biggest triumph. Uh, well, I don't want to say something like cheesy, like, well, I had a publication. Because hmm. <laughs> like I saw um, that you have submitted some stuff. And, like, I, yes, I have. I do have I have, I have one paper out, but I it was because I won a, I won a student paper contest and they published it. So it doesn't really count as a peer reviewed thing, which why are we caring about peer review? That's a whole other thing in, in archeology. span um, I feel like my biggest accomplishment is just being here and doing, I mean, like what literally is my childhood dream and getting to do that and like live that every day, which is kind of what like gets me through some of the hardest times of grad school is remembering like, you like you love this though like this sucked this day sucked doing this work sucked but like at the end of the day I get to do exactly what I like to do uh I get to do it every day even sometimes when it isn't fun because sometimes there's statistics and sometimes there's digging through clay but uh you know it is it is what I've like always wanted to do and I think probably just my my greatest triumph is you know getting to do that thing that like itty bitty little Emily really really wanted to do and you know I can sort of look back on my my sad childhood self who really had a pretty I was very very lonely sad child and I got to do what I wanted to do so it's like I wish I could go back in time and be like 
It's okay. It's going to happen. You're not going to work in Egypt, though. Get rid of that dream. But <laughs> you are going to be an archaeologist. So I, I don't know. That's probably really cheesy and sentimental. But I think that's probably what I would say is the, the biggest triumph. I love that. I love I love it when people chase their dreams and, and you know, start to catch them. So, yes. Emily, thank you so, so much for chatting with us. Yeah. Um, do you have yeah, any... Great. It was such a fun time. Um, do you have any social media links or handles that uh, that you'd like to, to put out there so our listeners can keep up with you? Yes. Um, I am on Twitter at, uh, at ArcHelmer, so at A-R-C-H Helmer, H-E-L-M-E-R. Um, so I talk a lot about archaeology on there, also uh, politics occasionally, and sometimes just sort of whatever I want. But I try to keep it sort of focused to archaeology. Um, and is there anything you're working on that we should stay tuned for? Oh, man. Well, I uh, I, I did just submit two journal articles, uh, but boy reading journal articles if you're not in that particular field can sometimes be a slog so <laughs> keep an eye out uh for some some journal publications from me if you don't mind reading uh really boring gis stuff which is <laughs> actually both of them are both of them are uh gis studies which is like i was talking about like the the fancy map making so <laughs> if you like cool maps that have a bunch of different kinds of data layered onto them stay tuned sounds fun out there (laughs) i don't have a lot of like uh i really should be doing more public outreach but i'm not well you know here's a start you did this here's a start and you've been busy (laughs) i've been busy grad school is hard there's a you do not have a lot of free time (laughs) oh my goodness we have had so much fun and we've learned so much from you tonight yeah, I had a great time chatting with you guys. I've been listening to the podcast too. It's they're all very good episodes. I'm very excited to hear what else you have coming up. Yay! Thank you. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, really, really appreciate all of the support over the weeks and months of this project, and for you know allowing us to grow and growing with us. If you are a scholar beyond the tower with a story to share, please email us at scholarsbeyondthetower at gmail.com or DM us on our social media. We've purposely kept the mission of Scholars Beyond the Tower extremely broad because we want to talk about how we as scholars engage with our work with the public inside, outside, and adjacent to the ivory tower. You can find our podcast on Twitter at Beyond Tower, on Instagram at Scholars Beyond the Tower, and on Facebook as Scholars Beyond the Tower. You can find me, Erin, on Twitter at Erin E underscore Becker. And you can find me, Caroline, on Twitter at Caroline C. Progro. You can find Scholars Beyond the Tower wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate, review, and subscribe so we can reach a wider audience. And before we close out today, Emily wants us to give a shout out to their department's mutual aid fund program. Um, So yes, definitely check out um, the Washington State University Anthropology Department Mutual Aid Program. Um, The money goes to helping anthropology students complete their field work during these troubled times. That is fabulous. Scholars, helping scholars is kind of the whole reason that the academy exists. Um, We just don't recognize it as, you know, like we, we just, it's not legible to us as, as something that is underpinning the academy because most of the solidarity has been by and for white men. So to break that up and to think about ways that we can support grad students, especially grad students who are on the cusp of finishing into a um, job market that doesn't exist um, is just really important because money should not be a barrier to finishing an education. Absolutely. We are always here for scholars helping scholars. On that note, guys, until next time, please stay connected and stay caffeinated.